Are we better off trying to forget painful and potentially divisive memories? Do we get along better when we avoid opening old wounds? Why is it often so difficult to work through the past? And what are the potential benefits of doing so? These are the questions we explore in Realms of Memory. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian, and in today's debut episode, we'll talk with author Susan Neiman about her recent book, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil. It took Germany nearly 50 years to take responsibility for its Nazi past. It was a long, difficult process, but one which Susan Neiman believes has made Germany a healthier and more trusted country today. While the history of every country is unique, Susan argues that there is much to learn from the Germans about the challenge of confronting the past and working through our own darkest chapters. When Susan Neiman decided to move to Germany in the early 1980s, her friends thought she was crazy. Why would a young Jewish-American woman want to live in Germany, especially Berlin, the former capital of Nazi Germany? But Susan was headstrong and naive about the weight of the past. Wasn't it unfair to hold all Germans responsible for the Holocaust forever? She wanted to study Enlightenment philosophy, and what would be a better place than Germany? birthplace of some of the most famous Enlightenment philosophers. Not only did Susan move to Germany, she got married and had her first child there. It was several years later, as a young mother deciding where to raise her family, that Susan realized that the Nazi past did still matter. It mattered in very profound ways that would affect her most important life choices. Berlin in the 80s was a much less cosmopolitan place. There's simply, there not only were very few Jews here, there were very few foreigners. And it was uncomfortable. Of course, I knew this to some extent when I had my first child, but having a child just made it increasingly clear to me. And I can mention one really egregious example, which was that a regular babysitter I had for him uh, told me at some point if I knew you were Jewish, I wouldn't have taken him. Not because, as she went on to say, I have anything against Jews. They can't help what they are, as she mm-hmm. put it. But I wouldn't have been able to treat him like any other child. And I thought that was very honest of her because all of the conversation around being Jewish, or if there was any conversation, was extremely uncomfortable and extremely awkward. Scholars had been studying just about every facet of Nazi Germany for decades, but many ordinary Germans had still not come to terms with the past. Seeing a Jew was still too painful of a reminder of a past they would rather not remember. To Susan, it seemed impossible that her son could ever have a normal life in Germany, so she decided to take a job in Israel instead. Twelve years and two more children later, Susan was offered her dream job, as director of the Einstein Forum in Berlin. Once again, Susan was faced with the same decision. Would Germany be the right place to raise her children? I was already in negotiations for my current job at the Einstein Forum, which is in many ways a dream job for me. It allows me to keep one foot in academics and one foot in the rest of the world. It's a public, international, interdisciplinary think tanks. So that was very appealing to me. 
but I was still, I had two more children at that point. And so I was, and we were living in Tel Aviv. So it was still a question for me whether things had changed enough in 12 years that I could have the feeling they could grow up normally without having to be afraid. And I was walking down one of the main streets in Berlin, Friedrichstraße, and in front of me was an African man with long dreadlocks uh, and a car swerved, didn't look where it was going. They weren't deliberately trying to he, uh, hit him, but it did nearly hit him. And he shouts out in perfectly good German with a slight, some kind of African accent. It wasn't African-American, but that is all I could say. He said, who gave you your driver's license, you asshole? <laughs> and at that moment, I thought, it's okay. Um, you know, I could not have imagined any foreigner talking back to, much less swearing at, a German on a public street. It just, we were all too frightened. If the Germans were still struggling to come to terms with the past in the 1980s, by the time Susan returned in 2000, Germany was a very different place. From overhauling the school curriculum to countless works of film, art, television, the story of the Holocaust and Nazi Germany was now tightly woven into the fabric of German society and into the minds of most Germans. Even the landscape of Berlin, once again the capital of a unified Germany, has been fundamentally reshaped by an awareness and acknowledgement of the past. A glass dome, symbolizing a desire for transparency, now tops the Reichstag, the German parliament building. A Holocaust memorial takes up five acres of prime real estate at the very heart of the capital. Artist Gunter Demnig has embedded over 61,000 stumbling stones, bronze pavers engraved with the names and deportation dates of the victims of the Holocaust on the sidewalks in front of the homes where the victims once lived. In her recent book, Learning from the Germans, Race and the Memory of Evil, Susan Neiman argues that nations benefit in concrete and far-reaching ways when they work through their darkest chapters. Once a pariah nation, Germany is now one of the leaders of the European Union, and according to international public opinion polls, one of the most trusted nations on the planet. When I argue that Germany has done a pretty good job, I have to put a couple of caveats before that. First of all, it took them a very long time to do it. Secondly, they still haven't done it uh, completely. And they certainly didn't do it perfectly. There are various kinds of blind spots, but they still did something that no other nation has ever done, which is, you know, most nations like to think of themselves as heroic in various kinds of ways. That's a natural way to feel about your people. If you can't think of your people as heroic, then you tend to think of them as victims. And that's a trope that you find in all kinds of countries. Well, you know, they would have been heroes, but history made them victims. But no other country made the move to say, you know what? Um, yeah, we were victims and uh, we suffered, but other people suffered more and it was our fault. We were also perpetrators. And nobody's done that. I sometimes think the Germans have uh, 
overdone it in complicated ways. Uh, interestingly enough, my book has done extremely well in the US. There's been a huge amount of interest in it uh, from very different kinds of people. It has been translated into German. It's been well-reviewed, but people are incredibly hostile towards the title. You know? And that says a lot about Germany and it says it, it certainly confirms my thesis because the standard reaction to the title is nobody can learn anything from us. We're a mess. We did too little, too late. We still have a, we have, or we have again a right-wing party. There's nothing to be learned from us. And I think that's highly exaggerated. But I, I understand it. It's sort of an article of faith among decent Germans that you have an obligation to be self-critical. When we look at what other countries in Europe or across the Atlantic are doing to take up the challenge of confronting the past, Germany looks even more exceptional. Look at all of our neighbors. Um, look at the U.S., look at Britain, look at France. Forget about Austria. I mean, people do know that Austria decided it was the first victim of the Nazis and has never really acknowledged anything else. Um, you know, look at Poland, look at Hungary. Um, you know, Germany is the first country that uh, Holland did an interview yesterday with a Dutch journalist. Um, Holland has never acknowledged either it's, you know, how much of its wealth was built on the slave trade and colonization, or even the fact that with the help of willing Dutch cooperation, the Nazis deported more Jews from Holland than any other country in Europe. So they've never come to terms with that. Or Belgium and the Congo, I mean, it's, it's really very striking, but I, there's, so, <laughs> I don't know how interesting this is for you. There's a complicated trope. So Hitler himself in Mein Kampf pointed to European Americans genocide of native peoples and theft of native lands as an excuse for saying, well, now I can go look for Lebensraum in the East. Now, you know, if the Americans did it, why not me? And that was a very standard Nazi thing to do. It's just that Hitler started it and plenty of people did it after the war. Susan explains that it's precisely because of this dark past of historical comparisons that Germans today are uncomfortable about comparing themselves to other nations. Pointing to the fact that other countries also had uh, blood on their hands the Nazis hoped to say, and therefore, you know, we can do it too. It wasn't that they really cared about colonialism or genocide or anything else. So because it, it was the Nazis so often pointed to other countries' sins as a way of exculpation, uh, current Germans are, are, unless they're very far to the right, are very uneasy about any sorts of comparison. And I understand that from their own history, but I think it's a mistake. What can other nations learn from how Germany confronted its past? 
Susan Neiman highlights three central lessons. First, nobody wants to look at their most shameful chapters. This is a long, difficult process that will spark considerable pushback. Second, despite these challenges, the German example shows that it is possible to work through even the most horrific events in a nation's past and come out the better for doing so. Lastly, while taking on this work is vital for the well-being of any nation, there is no single way of doing it. There wasn't even a single way for Germany. Germany was divided after the war into a communist East and a democratic West Germany. Contrary to popular beliefs, East German leaders did more than their West German counterparts to address the past. But in East Germany, the memory work on the Nazi past was more of a top-down process, whereas in West Germany, it involved a longer series of civil society initiatives. The leadership of East Germany were communists who had spent the war either in exile or in concentration camps. And they were very genuinely anti-fascist and were stuck with this population of people who had been living for 12 years under Nazi propaganda and had to figure out what to do with it. And they, first of all, uh, they put many more old Nazis on trial. They took many more old Nazis out of public office. They completely changed the school curriculum. They did quite a lot. Whereas you had a very different situation in West Germany, uh, particularly, well, there wasn't a West Germany until the Cold War had started. And this was very much with the complicity and the encouragement of the American occupying forces, because by the time the Cold War started, it was much more important to find people to fight communists than it was to re-educate old Nazis. And the best anti-communists were old Nazis. There's a piece in the New York Times, I think yesterday or the day before, someone uh, who had been a fairly high member of the Gestapo in Austria had never been brought to trial because the US didn't want him to and he helped out the CIA and so on. I forget exactly the details because there's so many of them. And the New York mm-hmm. Times was writing as if this were a new discovery. And anybody who knows about the history of post-war Germany knows that the government and the civil service, which includes, of course, not just the actual government, but uh, the schools, the universities, police offices, you know, pretty much everybody was, was absolutely implicated in the Nazi era. And uh, not too many of them were open to changing their views. So that was very common. And what that meant is that there was a deep silence about what had happened during the Nazi period. People have told me that their history lessons during that period stopped in 1933. They just, because nobody wanted to talk about it or knew how to talk about it properly, um, they just didn't talk about it. People's parents didn't talk about it. And, um, you know, that began to change In the late 50s, there were church groups who felt that something had to be done, 
who sent volunteers, uh, young Germans, to work on kibbutzim in Israel. There were some artists, some um, you know intellectuals who who made it a uh, a point of moral necessity that one had to face the Nazi past. A number of things happened to pull it all together, but it was slow. And I think that's an important lesson for those of us who are not Germans, because I, I certainly know and um, my friends in the US who are really working on these questions get sometimes discouraged about how much pushback there is um, or backlash in the case of the you know, the move from President Obama to uh, his successor, mm-hmm. um, you know, and people talk about how very hard it is to get Americans to face our violent past that we'd prefer to forget. But, you know, when when they find out, even the Nazis didn't want to deal with theirs, People tend to be very shocked. They tend to be very shocked that in West Germany, in particular, the for a good forty years after the war, the major, the major attitude of of most West Germans was we were the war's biggest victims. As late as the mid nineteen nineties, a traveling exhibit on the role of the Wehrmacht, the German military, in the crimes of the Second World War caused a massive outcry. The exhibit was firebombed when it reached the city of Saarbrücken, and its organizer was attacked as a nest fowler, someone who airs dirty laundry in public. This pushback stemmed from deeply rooted myths about the past and the gap between historical scholarship and popular consciousness. It was very important because the Wehrmacht had 19 million men in it, and that means that everybody had family that was in the Wehrmacht. And so people tended at least uh, once again in the West. I mean, I've talked to people about the Wehrmacht exhibit, talked to people from the East and they said, we knew all of that. You know, we knew about the murder of uh, Slavic civilians. I mean, both in Poland and in the rest of Eastern Europe by the Wehrmacht. But for West Germans, there was a, a myth that these were just good patriotic men doing their duty. And besides, there was a draft on, which is true. There was a draft on. The only way you could get out of it was by doing something worse, like being a concentration camp guard. But people tried to separate the SS, which was some bad apples, from the general Wehrmacht. And the Wehrmacht exhibit was a turning point, although what's quite interesting is that not only East German historians, you know, historians in general knew that. And when the Hamburg Institute that created that exhibit created it, they didn't think they were doing anything very controversial. They had no expectation of the impact that that, that, that exhibit would have. But, you know, this is always the difference. And this is something that interests me very, very much. And in a certain sense, the whole book is about this, there's a big gap between what professional historians know and what ordinary, even quite well-educated people know. 
For the Germans, taking responsibility for the Nazi past was a long and difficult process. Other countries should not expect it to be any easier. Pushback will inevitably follow any effort to question long-established ways of remembering the past. Germany does not offer a guidebook for how to confront the past. There is no one way to do this. In East Germany, the leadership drove the process. In West Germany, it was shaped more by bottom-up private initiatives. But the most important lesson the Germans have to offer is that it is possible to confront our darkest chapters and to come out the better for it. By taking responsibility for the past, Germany has become one of the most trusted countries on the planet and one of the leaders of the European Union. It was precisely because Germany became a more open and welcoming place that Susan Niemann decided to return to Berlin and to raise her family there. Now known as the Welcome Nation for its generous refugee and asylum policies, Germany opened its doors to over a million refugees fleeing the wars in the Middle East. With the new crisis in Ukraine, Germany is once again poised to welcome countless more refugees and to take on an even greater military and political role in Europe. to conclude by extending my deepest appreciation to Susan Neiman for so generously sharing her time and thoughts. I continue to be inspired by her insights and optimism. I would also like to invite listeners to tune into episode two, featuring my interview with historian Akiko Takenaka and how the Japanese remember the Asia-Pacific War. I've released two episodes to give listeners a broader introduction to this podcast future episodes will follow on a monthly basis. You can find show notes at realmsofmemory.com, which also has links to my email, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Thank you again for listening to Realms of Memory. <laughs>